0: That's the intro! Go I'll
1: edit this part out, obviously.
0: Uh, no, don't. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this episode includes a lot of health information, a lot of information that's very specialized and very... Um, Uh, It changes rapidly from day to day, week to week, um, with the ongoing uh, COVID SARS-2 outbreak or COVID-19. So please uh, read critically, Um, be aware of any uh, information that we may say in this podcast may be outdated by the time you hear it. Um, So please be sure to check official news sources or government websites for the most accurate and up-to-date information.
1: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Reader Beware. My name is Zach, and I'm joined by Thomas Rotering. Uh, Hello. My co-host today. Hey, Roter, how are you?
0: I'm doing well, you know. I've been in quarantine for about, well, quarantine, social isolation for about two weeks, so growing a bit of a beard, feeling a little haggard, but hanging in there. Quick
1: disclaimer, this is going to be a special episode. You probably already noticed this, but we don't have Alexis Russell with us, our legal-minded genius, social justice expert. Um, she is, uh, opted out of this discussion because this is kind of a quick, smaller one-off that we are going to be doing from time to time from now on. Um, we kind of view these as more, you know, something to listen to on your commute, a quick 15, 20 minute discussion about something in the news. We'll be centering these quick one-offs around, um, a piece of media that we enjoyed, either an article or a documentary maybe even a podcast. I don't know. Like there's plenty of opportunity to discuss critical things in different forums. And, uh, that goes way beyond books. And so we thought that that might be a good way to have shorter episodes that maybe provide people an easier route to engage with us and and read some of the things we're discussion discussing, because, you know, maybe you don't want to buy that book on Amazon. Maybe you don't want to read 300 pages. I don't blame you. I get it. So we're going to do some of these as as quick one-offs as well. You
0: got something better to do. Come on people.
1: I think on the last episode, it was really it was really poor audio quality, but on the last episode I, I think I said something like fourteen year old me would be really disappointed in himself.
0: <laughs> exactly. Here we are.
1: I thought I was gonna be quarterback by now for the
0: Pittsburgh
1: <laughs> What's up?
0: Yeah, I thought I'd be on the moon by now, but we <laughs> or at the bottom of the ocean. Marine biologist, believe it or not. And you uh you, John? Yep, marine biologist through about fourth grade, but Here we are, public health policy. Good enough.
1: Um, One thing I didn't mention, we'll link to these articles in the description. So if you are listening to this podcast, maybe go ahead and click on the link to the first article um, that is listed in our description titled Lessons from Past Outbreaks Could Fight the Coronavirus Pandemic. So that's going to be our main piece of media that we're discussing. It was published in Scientific American, which is a medical journal. Um, and was published by Sarah, uh, what's her last name? I, am going to pronounce this horribly. gadarzi mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. gadarzi something like that. Rotor gave me a look when I said this is a medical journal. Is this not a medical <laughs> journal? It's,
0: uh, I mean, it's, 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 uh, it's got a great reputation. Um, but it is a bit more, a bit more mainstream, maybe a little bit less, less technical, I'd say. Um, but nevertheless has some good information in it. Um, yeah.
1: It's Sarah Godarzi is a Brooklyn writer that holds an MA in journalism from New York university. Her non-fictions appear in the New York times, national geographic news, the Christian science monitor, CNN, the globe and daily mail, um, scholastic science world magazine. So she's, we know a little bit about the author and that she's written for some credible institutes, but you know, we don't have her CV. So.
0: <laughs> right. Yes. So the article sort of, traces um, lessons from the past. It goes through the 1918 um, Spanish influenza. It goes through the SARS outbreak, the Zika outbreak, or references those, and it sort of um, draws this thread through the different pandemics um, to give an idea for what we're dealing with with the coronavirus. Um, It talks a little bit about the reproduction number um, between uh, SARS COV-2 or COVID-19. We'll just call it COVID-19 um, or the coronavirus. I think it's big enough to warrant that name at this point. Um, but the, it, it discusses the median reproductive number of the 1918 flu as around 1.8. That means for every person who is infected, they'll infect an average of 1.8 other people um, versus the coronavirus, which is somewhere between two and two point five, obviously that meaning that it's a little bit more infectious. However, based off the exponential rate of infection for that small number, that can translate to far more number uh, f- or far more people being affected by this virus over um, a virus with a smaller um, attack rate, infection rate, reproductive number. It's, it's termed R-naught um, as sort of a hypothetical number for which um, infection can sort of be, be uh, tied to. Um, but what I think is really interesting about this article is it goes through a bit of the history and makes a case for how um, disease countermeasures, especially um, social distancing and quarantine can be quite effective in um, preventing the spread of this pandemic and sort of flattening the curve. You may have heard that term a lot in recent weeks, but it's sort of this idea that if we can spread out who is affected over a longer period of time, then our health systems can have a better capacity to care for everyone, as opposed to a spike in cases, which overburdens our healthcare system and leads to potentially more deaths, more people who are not able to uh, get treatment, and also our our health systems being eroded and all of the um, brave people who who work in healthcare not having the resources that they need um, to do their jobs and to do what they wanna do. Um, So we're gonna have a discussion. I I just maybe wanna open up by saying, I think that the public health costs, which right now, as of Monday, the 30th of March, they're saying that anywhere between, um, a, a few thousand more people may die from this virus very unfortunately to somewhere around two hundred thousand. And I, I think Zach, you may have may have heard some slightly different numbers. Is that right?
1: Um, yeah, I mean there's a lot of numbers that are being kicked around right now. I I've seen anywhere from like 50,000, uh, in the low end of like, Hey, we did a great job. Social distancing. We only see 50,000 people die horrible, but way better than a worst case scenario, which looks more like 350,000 or, or somewhere around there. Mm -hmm. These are like low probability outcomes. They're like best case scenario, worst case scenario. A lot of the kind of middle of the bell curve. Um, if you're, if you're familiar with statistics, uh, you're typically dealing with a, a curve, a range of outcomes that are represented in um, a bell curve. And on the tails of that bell curve, you'll see low probability outcomes. And in the middle of that bell curve, you'll see higher probability outcomes. And so for COVID-19 and, and the death rate in that middle higher probability outcome part of the bell curve, you know that's where I'm, I've kind of seen between 150,000 deaths to 200, 250,000 deaths, all depends on the, person that's speaking, the scientific study they're citing, and the like methodology behind the study that was conducted. So like, there's a lot of variance in these numbers, and they can change, like Reuters said, but, you know, somewhere roughly between like 50k and 300k, best case, worst case.
0: Right. And these models try to account for everything, from every policy change to um, sort of every unknown about the virus and the spread of disease. So um, as, as someone who has done a little bit of modeling in public health before, you know, nothing is, is excluded from those models if it can be accurately or even roughly estimated. And also just to contextualize um, the number of cases of coronavirus and the, the projected number of deaths, um, the CDC reported in for the 2018 flu season that 80,000 people died of flu. Um, and on the tobacco side of things, which is what I primarily study, um, there are 480,000 deaths per year in the United States attributable to cigarette smoking, with 41,000 deaths resulting from secondhand smoke exposure. Um, obviously, there's a lot of causes of death, but that's sort of maybe my my bone to pick. A lot of the time, with um, sort of sensationalizing this, is that um, there are many causes of death which are are far more dire and kill a lot of people prematurely, and that means that they lose a lot of years of their life. Um, The coronavirus ought to be taken seriously, and I'm a fan of these sort of aggressive measures to prevent more people from getting sick and from dying, Um, but it's also important to remember that we have a lot of work to do in other areas as well and that we should have an appropriate response for this. Would you agree that this is sort of an appropriate response, Zach, or do you think we're we're overdoing it? Maybe we're not taking it seriously enough. What do you think?
1: Yeah, I don't know. I have a lot of thoughts. Um, first, I want to quibble with 41,000 people die secondhand smoke a year. I want to see that study. Second, <laughs> <Okay>. Um. <laughs> uh. Sec- second. Um. I think like. I really appreciate the social distancing and the immediate changes that we've seen. I don't think I quibble too hard with policy that's been implemented to this point from the perspective of social distancing and quarantine measures that have been taken in some states and cities and counties. I get a little more worrisome thinking about the future of how this plays because I know all of the data indicators are lagging when we talk about COVID-19 and coronavirus, so The numbers we're seeing today tell us kind of about, tell us basically how we did last week or like the week before, uh, in turn, it depends on what you're looking at, right? Um, people that have the infection from tests and deaths, deaths are really lagging. Deaths could be lagging from like, you know, months because it can take quite a while for individuals to like get sick and die from something like coronavirus. So I, I, I worry about things continuing to get worse with these lagging data indicators and us getting to a point where we take even more aggressive policy measures or continue to implement the current very aggressive policy measures that we're currently implementing um, to where they're no longer effective or or they would no longer be, not no longer effective. I'm getting a little muddled here, but I guess what I'm kind of like dancing around is you start to deal with economic trade-offs. Like mm-hmm. if you have really severe social distancing, non-essential businesses closed, I, I think there are really severe economic trade-offs that should at least be evaluated. Um, in good faith before you craft policy decisions around something like this and i'm sure some people are looking at that and talking in the president's ear and whatnot but to me i feel like that's a little bit underrated like you brought up you have how many however many people that die of cigarette deaths a year you have however many people that die of poor traffic infrastructure in developing nations every year like there are more easy to fight things that kill people um, in greater numbers there there's um there's more preventable causes of death in the world that we could attack. And this sprung yeah. up on us and kind of attacked us out of nowhere, but there's a lot of existing harms that we could be currently devoting the same resources to. So it's, it's an interesting discussion. I don't wanna like downplay it cause it is gonna kill quite a bit of people. Um, and it's something that we should take very seriously. Like I think we should take a lot of these crises uh, more seriously. But I, I think I should all I think we should also take a great I, I, not a great but a recession or an economic downturn rather seriously and severe right. numbers rather seriously. And so like
0: yeah, that's a trade-off. That, that that and then the trade-off is not lives on one hand versus money for billionaires on the other hand. It's lives, lot, yeah. And a lot of times I think that that becomes the very simple story, but that's so reductive. Um but just to 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 cycle back for a second, um, I think a lot of times politics and prevention are natural enemies um, because it's very hard for a politician to get to do things. It's hard for a government to like, really get the will to make a significant action if there aren't people dying, if there isn't public outcry, if there isn't you know a media storm around what they're saying. So prevention, a lot of the times, tries to look into the future and tries to obviously prevent these deaths from, or diseases from happening in the future. And so normally you don't see a lot of will for politicians to address those things, those causes of deaths that are more insidious or chronic. Um, but now with all of the panic around the coronavirus, we sort of flipped that equation. And I, I think what I'm hearing from you, Zach, is that if we if we let that panic pervade all of our policymaking, then we might come to a situation where the, the medicine is worse than the Disease. And, and that's something that I think we should avoid as well.
1: I'm not trying to take the Trump position. I agree with <laughs> the current, okay, okay. current status quo of operations. But I, I do think when he said that we can't let the, the solution be worse than the problem, there is something to be said for that. Um, and I don't think we're doing a great job of evaluating it because of the panic, which you just brought up, right? Like people are really worried about this and they don't know what to do with it. We broke out the sledgehammer from a policy perspective uh, Camille Foster's on a podcast called the fifth column and he brought this analogy up and it's like, we, we can choose a lot of different tools in the toolbox to handle different crises and, and problems. We are taking really aggressive action. I would say this is probably some of the most aggressive action I've seen out of my government in my lifetime. Maybe the Patriot Act compares or some things, you know, with the war in Iraq or maybe one or two social issues I can think of like gay marriage where there was just massive flips that happened in my lifetime and, and policy changed in ways that I never thought it would. Seeing Mitt Romney article, ar- argue for a universal basic income, that's something <laughs> right. I never thought <laughs> I would see in my life. Right. Like that's amazing to me that you have these really cutting, like Mitt Romney's just a Republican. Like he was the presidential nominee in 2012. Mm-hmm. Like before this Trump moment that we're in, he was very, cut, like very much just a standard kind of, run-of-the-mill Republican and so it's very interesting to me to see how aggressive people are willing to to go uh when when addressing coronavirus people are willing to step way outside of their ideological lanes when proposing solutions and I don't know if the sledgehammer was necessary I don't think anybody did I, I think it's important to take some step backs and continue to monitor the situation and be very flexible like I don't I don't like scientists who are kind of saying, Hey, we need to leave everything shut down through the summer. I don't like options where we're like, you know, Hey, let's put a finalized date on this. I think allowing governments some flexibility is really important because the data is going to continue to, to rapidly shift. And we'll understand how our policy has affected the overall outcomes, um, in the next couple of weeks. And Mm -hmm. I think at that point, it's going to be, that's when it's really going to be important to consider the economic trade-offs because Mm -hmm. there are 3 million people that filed for unemployment last week. That's a record. That's more than anybody has ever, ever filed for unemployment in a single week. For context, during the Great Recession, um, unemployment peaked. This is over the entire Great Recession, the 2008 economic collapse. Mm -hmm. Unemployment peaked at 10% in October 2009 when more than 15 million people were unemployed. So we got a fifth of the overall impact of the Great Recession in one week filing for unemployment. So 15 million people, Great Recession, 3 million people in one week for coronavirus. I think that's only going to continue to go up because you've really only seen states like California, New York, and Washington take such aggressive action to where you have a lot of people out of work. Beyond Mm -hmm. that, I think when people are not out traveling and social distancing, you have other people that are just in at-risk position jobs like if you wait tables for instance you're probably not working right now um according to the fed there are nearly 67 million americans working in jobs that are at high risk of layoffs and an economic freeze could cost about 47 million people those jobs it's kind of what some of the top economists are projecting this specifically is from the st louis fed president james bullard and his initial estimates based on um federal reserve data and so we'll link all these articles that, you know, to the statistics that we're we're saying in the description as well for supplementary reading. But I think those are things that make me really afraid of what's to come. If we continue to remain in this, this stasis of panic, I don't think the stasis of panic is good.
0: Yeah. And it's, I think, because this changes the equation so much, I I mean, that's what a simple sentence, because the coronavirus changes the way that people think and operate, um, you know, Uh, an infectious disease like this, Trump's called it an invisible enemy and that we're at war. Um, When we've gone to war in the past, there's been this state of exception where, well, it's an emergency, so we need to just pull out all the stops, go big or go home. And unfortunately, what I I think we've seen and what we may see after this crisis is that leaders are resistant to give up those newly acquired powers that they have um, acquired. Um, There was a New York Times article which came out today, which we will link, and it's entitled For autocrats and others, coronavirus is a chance to grab even more power. It sort of traces different um, sort of authoritarian measures which have been taken around the world to curtail coronavirus. Um, One particularly disturbing um, uh, program that it cites is it uh, says Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has authorized his country's internal security agency to track citizens using a secret tr- of cell phone data developed for counterterrorism. By tracing people's movements, the government can punish those who defy isolation orders with up to six months in prison. Um, I'd encourage you to read the article, it traces uh, sort of, it, it tells a story about several other governments which are also instituting sort of authoritarian measures, um, and because this is so unprecedented and because we are really pulling out all the stops, um, I just worry that that state of exception will become a lasting um, sort of uh, way that the government operates and sort of what that means for our country. If you think about 9-11, in which 3,000 maybe Americans died? 3,000, yeah. Three, wow. Yeah. So if, if you think about the way that 9-11 changed the world and the United States, and then you compare the relative impact of coronavirus, I think, I think it's fairly clear that we need to be especially vigilant of what our government's doing. And really, um, maybe it's too late, but I think it's very important to trust the people in the room where these decisions happen on such a rapid time frame, um, Because these are, these are new problems that they're approaching and we're gonna see some new solutions that um, will have unintended consequences, surely. Um, but all those 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 unemployment numbers you're talking about Zach, those people who lose their their jobs their ability to you know put put food on the table they're going to need solutions um and I think that the government has an ability to step in to fill some of those needs um but i am wondering for you zach as a as a perhaps you're comfortable with the title libertarian um <laughs> <I don't know. laughs>
1: I don't like labels. Sure. Okay. So, <laughs> as
0: someone whose whose previous positions could possibly be ascribed to other people who possibly may ascribe to the power, <laughs> uh, libertarian, um, are you comfortable with this level of intervention? Do you think it's appropriate for the government to step in in these ways, or or does it kind of you know rub you the wrong way?
1: Oh, it definitely rubs me the wrong way. And I thought you were gonna bring this up, but like nine eleven results in the Patriot Act, right? Which a lot of us view, I think, regardless of party, I I even talked to plenty of Republicans. I think, I think Democrats really don't like the Patriot Act. Libertarians really don't like the Patriot Act. But I've even talked to plenty of Republicans who are like, yeah, that's, that's executive overreach. Like, I don't think that I like the, the executive branch of the government having that much power. Um, and I, I think that there is plenty of examples throughout history to where you can point to crisis leading to power that, you know, doesn't get handed back. When you let when you let the government borrow your car, they're really hesitant to give you the keys after after they're done using. Um look at the War Powers Act, right? Like War Powers Act gets implemented and we have continued to like reapprove it year after year after year, despite the fact that there's plenty of instant times when it was like there's no conflict, there's no real reason why the government needs exception why the executive branch specifically needs um, exceptional power. Uh, via the War Powers Act. There's no reason that the government, that the executive branch in Congress, needs additional power via the Patriot Act. Or it's been rebranded now that now that now it's called the Freedom Act, but it mm. still exists today. <laughs> and so it's just it's um concerning to me that we're willing to give the governor of California the the ability to institute something like martial law, where he can check my papers when I'm out like walking my dog. Like, hey, are you an essential employee? Yeah. Like, I, I really think that's not a good precedent to set because whatever, it might be fine when you have like, you know, <laughs> no no offense to Gavin Newsom, but I don't know if he's the most intimidating figure in the world. There's like plenty <laughs> of more nefarious actors that could potentially grab those levers of power and do bad things with them. You'll, mm-hmm. You give the government power when you trust the guy in charge, but you don't think about the impact when you don't like the guy who's in charge next.
0: Well, that's true. But couldn't you say that about the military or having police in general? Obviously, this power can be misused, but I think if, if there ever was a time to use that power, and certainly there is really a legal precedent like, for it, it seems like I, now's the time.
1: But I think if we're going to pass anything like this, there needs to be really hard and set limits on it. Like it needs, You cannot have a state of exception that is um, indefinite. You need to mm-hmm. have some kind of set end date or some kind of at least set evaluation date um, yeah,
0: that's a good and point. I don't,
1: I don't think that those things have been discussed to this point. I want to circle back to the economy points in a second, but on this topic of you know how much should the government spend to propose solutions to workers, you kind of you kind of brought that up as a, yeah. as a kind of one off. I read a 538 article that was really good. Dang, we're, we're citing too many articles in this, probably.
0: Um, <laughs> probably.
1: We'll, we'll narrow the next one, I promise. I, Our
0: readers I, are well-read. <laughs> uh, sure,
1: all six of them, your dad and yes my dad. It <laughs> <laughs> I read a 538 article last week that, that was titled, What Should the Government Spend to Save a Life? It's really dark, as one could imagine. But... Wow economists price out how much human lives are worth when they're evaluating traffic laws or public health laws or like plenty of like building a new city center, you know, like there's lots of, I don't know about that one, but there's lots of like traffic is an easy one because you, you can institute new roads and immediately cause a reduction
0: in like, fatal traffic
1: accidents. And so they have
0: roads, like new regulations for the roads, No,
1: new roads, like roads that are out of date bridges that are falling (laughs) apart roads with potholes, roads that are single lane, but the traffic is now grown to where that single lane is no longer safe for that part of the country. Like Mm -hmm. in where I live in central California, you have really heavy traffic on a freeway called the 99. It's in terrible shape. Like it's a one lane freeway through or highway freeway, whatever through most of it. And it, it's one of the most dangerous freeways in the world. If you look it up, more people die on that freeway than most other freeways or highways in the United States. And when governments are thinking about, hey, should we renovate this road? They have to think about how much are we willing to spend on that? And to do that, they they kind of model out like how much are we pricing on lives? And so so James Hannett, an economist at Harvard's TH Chan School of Public Health and the director of Harvard's Center for Risk Analysis said that, the EPA values a human life around $9.4 million, whereas other economists put it somewhere around $10 million. Um, this estimate means that if a group of 10,000 people is facing a 1 in, 1, 1 in 10,000 risk of death, they're willing to pay $1,000 per person to reduce the odds, right? So it not only has to do, like if your chance of dying is one to one, your life is worth about $10 million to the government if your chance of dying is like one in 10,000, like maybe you'll die, but it's not very likely. It's about a thousand dollars a person if you're facing a one in 10,000 risk of dying. So Mm -hmm. when you multiply that by the deaths that we're talking about for the coronavirus, we're talking about like potentially $20 trillion um, would be what the government should spend based on those types of evaluations. Hmm. The stimulus bill was what, 2.3, like it was like $2 trillion trillion or so. Mm -hmm. Um, and there was another, like one or two, there were two stimulus bills. I think one of them was like 2 trillion. The other one was like a trillion or so. We're not spending near the number that the government would, we're not spending near the dollar number the government would put on a human
0: life for this. To be client. consistent.
1: Yeah. To be consistent with their other models and policy evaluations. So I think that that's really interesting and maybe actually a case to be made for us spending more. This is coming from the guy who yeah, yeah. like, <laughs> I'm already skeptical <laughs> about spending any money or yeah. not like big money on this but i think that a, something like that made my ears perk up and go like okay this is really bad considering the way the government does this math for other things
0: well yeah that is so interesting to me uh we we covered this a little bit in our cost effectiveness class uh, for my master program and um health economics but it's so interesting to me because i don't think the government's saying a human life is worth 9.4 million dollars and let me explain. I, I think that when the government, as a representative of ta- the taxpayers of of the uh, the people in the United States, when they have a limited pool of money that they need to distribute accordingly, you know, they don't have infinite money. Um, although that may not be true, based off you know debt and whatnot. They're just printing it, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. They're just printing. It. But if if we're maintaining some level of consistency, they have a limited pool of money. And they have to embrace the idea that every life is equal. So if they, can, if they can direct money in one direction and help 10 people stay alive for 10 years, or they could direct the same amount of money somewhere else and help one person stay alive for one extra year, obviously they're gonna take the 10 people for 10 years uh, offer over the other one because they need to value every life equally. Now, that becomes a problem when um, maybe Republicans are arguing against Obamacare and they bring up death panels, because that, that makes it sound like the government is you know pulling the plug on grandma, that they're this cold, calculating entity that says, no, human life is not worth more than $9.4 million, and then they're, they're killing people suddenly. But I think at its root, it is the government evaluating every life as equal with a finite pool of money. I don't know how debt financing explodes that whole calculation, but um, that's such an interesting conversation to me. I'd be it's curious. Fa- what.
1: It's what a fascinating are. point. I mean, in the same 538 article that I, I just referenced, James Aldi, uh, also a, Harvard's, uh, a Harvard guy, a public policy professor at Harvard's Kentucky School of Government, said that under President George W. Bush, the EPA actually tried to put a lower value of life on older people in calculating the, bit, uh, the benefits of air quality regulations. In their analysis, the life of a young person over the age of, uh, the life of a person over the age of 70 was worth 37% less than the life of a lo- younger person.
0: Yeah, that's also so interesting because a lot of times how they do it in healthcare with a uh, quality adjusted life here is, is they actually go to the person who has recently undergone a surgery, um, is taking a medication and they ask them, how would you rate your quality of life? I'd be curious to see if the, uh, which administration did you say? Bush, W. If the Bush, if W. Bush, if he used a similar methodology, because it's one thing to ask someone, how how's your quality of life versus asking, you know, the government to say, how much is this life year worth? Is an older person's life year worth more than a younger's life worth? How, uh, how do you, how do you calculate that? Is it uh, how productive they are? Is it how much enjoyment they have? Is it? how good they are at fine arts and enjoying their life. Is it gross national happiness? Obviously, there's a million, uh, you know, routes you could go down with that. But I think ultimately it has to be based off the idea that every life has equal value in the eyes of the government, which is being forced into these terrible decisions. And circling back to the coronavirus and and COVID-19, I think
1: it gets doubly complex, these policy decisions that governments are making and, and the trade-offs and saving lives when you start to consider the economy. I'll link these next couple of articles that I talk about. The Atlantic had an article published about the Great Recession um, in March thir- on March 13th of 2018. This is a study conducted by uh, Teresa Seaman, an epidemiologist at UCLA and her college- and her colleagues. Um, they, they surveyed individuals between 2000 and 2012 to look for changes in their blood, uh, blood pressure and fasting blood sugar levels. And they found that blood sugar levels increased significantly amongst all groups during the great recession. So between 2008 and the end of the great recession, which is kind of put, you know, 2011, maybe sometime in 2012. Um, so I, I think it's, you know, that's, that's one way in which people's quality of life was worsened by an economic recession. They had an increase of blood pressure and an increase of blood sugar levels. Um, So you can probably correlate some deaths to that. It's a lot squishier than the coronavirus because you can't test for, did this person die of a recession?
0: Well, I know we want to keep these a little bit shorter and we could definitely talk for another 90 minutes about this. Um, But I think I'll I'll give you the last word. And uh, before I do that, maybe just throw in my, my best case scenario maybe. I think that Learning from this, we as a global community can be more transparent. Ask China, especially, to be more transparent um, about our healthcare systems, um, strengthen those healthcare systems, strengthen surveillance so that we can fight these sort of primal conflicts against bacteria and viruses and other infectious diseases. Um, we can learn to support one another in our personal lives, but also. Sort of reconsider the role of the government in our lives and hopefully come out with a newfound appreciation for um, prevention. That's my personal opinion as a public health professional, but a, a better appreciation for our health systems, for prevention, and hopefully come out of this on the other side with more appreciation for, um, you know, concerts, meeting other people in public. And also a greater appreciation for the liberties that we must carefully defend in light of new and complicated problems.
1: I have a great newfound appreciation for bars. <laughs> yeah,
0: right. I just want to be here, man.
1: Else. I just want to
0: sit at a bar. Top. I just want to peacefully assemble, exercise my First Amendment rights.
1: Yeah, I I think that's a good. I mean, I'm going to quibble with like some of those takeaways a little bit, just because I. I don't know how much I want to strengthen the surveillance network, Um, but I do totally agree with the idea that we should be strengthening our healthcare system and we should be reconsidering the role of the government in our day-to-day. Beyond that, I think like one interesting thing that hasn't been talked about too much is the deregulation that we've seen occur during coronavirus. The ability for people to innovate, try new things, and not be held liable for like small scale failures. Obviously you don't want people just like putting medical devices into people's bodies without testing them. That's a whole different problem that exists and there's not enough regulation around something like that. However, the the, the bureaucracy probably is really slow and really difficult for something like sanitizing um like one thing I heard is that people are trying to, or somebody's innovated how to sanitize medical equipment that's already been used once and it, they're trying to get that through government testing but That would normally take months or weeks or years and so the administration's kind of speeding things speeding that up and like trying to get it through those systems in Mm -hmm. quicker fashions so like i think that would be helpful as well because the government is not good (laughs) at implementing big scale systems in a lot of cases the government has been poor at that everything but the irs i think has not been the most efficient you know process i think this is, yeah, maybe I'm on a soapbox here, but like between the DMV or or whatever, right? There's not a lot, government solutions aren't always the best. We don't have the best public education system in the world. We don't have the best public infrastructure in the world. There's a lot of issues with the government trying to implement everything, but I think this deregulation and allowing private entities to try and innovate and try and help fight a, a problem that is a societal global problem is is pretty important and pretty impactful. And so like, I would be for us continuing to increase the development of these types of technologies from a private business standpoint, but we'll see what happens. And, yeah. uh, you know, we'll a be to talk through it.
0: Yeah. And as always,
1: on paid vacation.
0: <laughs> as always readers beware.
1: Hey listeners, one quick correction and an update from the episode you just heard. First in this episode, we discussed the potential death ranges, uh, or death range projections from experts for the COVID-19 pandemic in the United States. We discussed the projections being somewhere between 50,000 and 350,000. Now seeing new data, since we recorded, we see that they're closer to 100,000. The ranges are somewhere between 100,000 deaths if we do everything really well to 2.2 million deaths uh, if we do absolutely nothing to stop the virus. So obviously both ends of the predictability curve are a little bit um, higher in terms of the overall number with the far end of the predictability curve being much higher uh, with a much broader range than initially we discussed and uh, thought. Additionally, uh, we were seeing and discussing unemployment numbers from the week of March 21st when we recorded. We now have new unemployment numbers from the week of March 28th. And we actually saw that record number of 3 million unemployed individuals double to now 6.65 million individuals that filed for unemployment during the week of March 28th. So obviously, a very big jump and uh, a significant data point that's worth mentioning considering how much we did discuss unemployment in the episode. Hope you enjoyed and uh, look forward to speaking at you again soon. As always, readers beware.